Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 183rd episode of the Nauticast, titled The World Went Mad, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Samwell 2, in which Sam the Slayer basks in the glory of killing a white walker. That's what this chapter is all about, right? Right? It's all sunshine and rainbows from Sam here on out. Nothing else will happen to him of note. I am holding you to that promise, Manu. You will be personally responsible if that is not the case. Our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all the published books, the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Speaking of the TV shows, our question this week comes from our patron JJ, who asks, Given the success of House of the Dragon so far, in terms of writing, directing, and acting, how do you think it compares to Game of Thrones? When all is said and done, if the show continues on its current trajectory, does it have a chance to be better than its predecessor? What factors do you think have contributed most to its success? I think a big thing that makes it just a successful show in the first place is that it takes every aspect of its production seriously, like the visuals, the aesthetic, the direction, the costuming, the score, and then, of course, the casting, I think, most of all. I think the strength of the original Game of Thrones show was in its cast, most of all, Mm -hmm. especially when you had characters who didn't have any interiority because of the point of view structure or were just kind of minimally on page. You saw those kind of characters flourish, the Varuses the Tywin Lannisters, Um, even though he didn't really understand the role, Stephen Delane as Stannis Baratheon brought something with his kind of curmudgeonly performance. And I think that's exactly where House of the Dragon is succeeding yet again. It's on the backs of Matt Smith and Patty Considine, Emma Darcy, Olivia Cook, and their younger actors who played them, Millie Alcock and Emily Carey. I imagine we'll see several of these actors be submitting for Emmys and hopefully a couple of them at least get the nominations out of it. So I think I think it has a chance to be better in terms of just the pure quality of the show. The thing that I am curious about is does it will it have the moments like say Jamie and Brienne in a bath or even Jamie and Catelyn in a dungeon cuz a lot of what we know about fire and blood are the big let's say red wedding level events like the big battles the big betrayals and i'm just kind of curious whether it will have that connective tissue that really makes those bigger moments sing and i think probably an issue with later game of thrones was the fact that that connective tissue wasn't there it was just all the spectacle half of it um and i think that's kind of where the quality did a little bit for me so to me it'll be fleshing out the margins that are left by fire and blood whether they can do that successfully over three to four seasons to make it compete with the original game of thrones run or at least the best of game of thrones that's really well said i think you're absolutely right that it needs to have those intimate showstoppers as well as the big spectacle scenes and it's performed i think pretty well on that front so far but there are going to be fewer opportunities for that going forward, I think, just organically, because a sorrowful character like Viserys is gone. The Rhaenyra-Alicent relationship, well, I'm sure you can still do scenes from afar, is kind of poisoned beyond repair at this point. So that is kind of the heart of the show, is going to be less prominent. And there there are moments of just uh, Baroque Byzantine cruelty, like blood and cheese, that are going to be amazing, like Red Wedding-style events, as you say. But will they will they grab you by the gut and will they grab you by the heart and will they give you a strong sense of what this this means on the whole? And that is something they're going to have to 
create more on their own. I'm very curious how they handle the the uh, Jace going north plot in season two, both because there's a lot of interesting ideas to fill in in terms of the lore there, building on the stuff they established in season one, but also because then that actor and that character is going to have to carry that storyline on his own. I mean, obviously we're going to meet new interesting characters like Creek and Stark and so forth, but in terms of the established cast, that's going to be all him. And you have the potential to create those moments, but that storyline could also, I could also see falling flat, potentially being a weakness. As a small thing, I'm very curious how they handle Daron now. <laughs> like, he's in the family tree, as as, uh, as Chloe pointed out on Twitter, that Daron, fourth son of Alicent and Viserys, is in the official HBO Targaryen family tree. So they're clearly doing him at some level, but they did not mention him at all in season one. That is going to be a weird transition if they just go, oh, yes. Allison has this other kid in Old Town that we we just thought not to mention up until now. I think, you know, obviously expanding the cast is a, is a difficult move. It was for Thrones that they mostly handled well, sometimes not as well as others. We'll see how Hati manages that. But I totally agree with you that the cast was an essential part of what made season one work. And as I was saying throughout all those episodes, uh, I really liked the editing on this show. I thought it was really strong. There was always a couple moments in each episode where they had a really significant cut that tied stuff together. And for me, I was always like, oh, okay, that's what the episode's about. There it is right there. And then everything else kind of supported that. And that's that's the kind of stuff I really love and look for in television is that very patient craftsmanship that I think also definitely defined Thrones at its best and Thrones at its worst was when it was kind of moving away from that. So thank you so much to our patron JJ for the question. As always, if you want to ask us questions that we were forced to answer here in the Nauticast podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where our sworn sword or higher level patrons can ask us questions. Moving into the chapter proper, when last we left Samuel Tarly, he had just melted a white walker like she was like it was the Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard of Oz, and then started taking one step after another again. And now we find out where he was going in this synopsis to A Storm of Swords, Samuel II. Up in the loft, a woman was giving birth noisily, while below, a man lay dying by the fire. Samuel Tarley could not say which frightened him more. I know the point of doing these synopses is to summarize what happens in the chapter, but that opening is so perfect it can't be summarized. I wouldn't change a word of it. Anyway, the dying man is Bannon. His fellow watchmen have covered him in blankets and built a raging fire, but he's still cold and won't even eat the broth Sam keeps trying to feed him. Well, that's rude. Craster, gunning for Walder Frey's worst host trophy, says they may as well kill Bannon, if you ask his opinion. Well, we didn't ask your opinion, shoots back Bedwin, aka Giant. We asked for food and fire, and now you're cutting off the food. Craster says he fed the crows what he could, and if he wasn't a godly man, he wouldn't have let them back into his keep at all. Uh, which gods are those again, Craster? Nah, never mind. Sam thinks that a maester might have been able to save Bannon, but they don't have a maester. They don't have much. There are, quote, a ragged score of black brothers in Craster's Keep, and Bannon is not even the worst off. When they first rode north of the Wall, they had medicines from Maester Aemon and a couple guys who knew how to use them. But all of that was lost on the fist of the first men, with so much else. All Sam can do is try to feed the wounded, but there just isn't enough food to go around. Even the relatively healthy men, emphasis on relatively, have been complaining about that. Clubfoot Carl and Garth of Old Town have been muttering about how Craster has to have a man cave somewhere, where he hides all the good snacks. For his part, Sam has considered begging Craster for food, Oliver Twist style, but hesitates because Craster really seems to have it in for our POV. 
Sam is worried that Craster might know he spoke to Gilly when they last stayed here. Speaking of Gilly, that's her giving birth up in the loft. Her sister wives tell her to scream through it if she needs to, but that pisses off Craster. Then again, what doesn't? He threatens to beat Gilly if she doesn't stay quiet, and Sam knows he's not bluffing. They all overheard him beating one of his younger girls. The Watchmen were furious and horrified. Well, most of them anyway. Clubfoot Carl was into it. And some guy named Ronald Harclay, who we've never heard of before but apparently makes the rules now, says that this is Craster's roof and Craster's rule. After all, say it with me, he's a friend to the Watch. Sam has, let's say, complicated feelings about that. It's true that Craster took them in from the cold, but that doesn't make it any easier to swallow his treatment of his daughters. Gilly asked Sam for help, and didn't they take vows to defend the realms of men? But Sam knows that Gilly isn't even afraid for herself so much as the child, especially if it's a boy. Boys don't last long at Craster's keep. Gilly told Sam that Craster gives them to the gods. Sam prays for the baby to be a girl, and then immediately overhears that it's a boy. Oh, thanks a lot, gods. You don't have to be such dicks about it. Craster complains again about how much noise Gilly is making and reminisces about a pig he had once, which birthed a bunch of baby pigs without making a sound. Okay, well, maybe you should have married her instead. Craster then says that that pig was almost as fat as Sam. I'm sorry, as Slayer, Sam's new nickname. Sam finally decides to get the fuck out of there, ducking outside where, if nothing else, the snow is starting to melt. There haven't been any attacks by the White Walkers, nor their army of the dead, since the Watchmen made it to Craster's Keep. As Craster said, he got right with the gods. What a dream of spring. A nightmare of spring? Something like that. The other surviving Watchmen are all out here, skinning animals, chopping wood, walking sentry, or holding an archery contest. Even at the end of the world, we'll still have sports, for better or worse. Sam wanders up to the latter group watching Ulmer just barely defeat Sweet Donald Hill. Ulmer is just about to launch into his stories of the Kingswood Brotherhood, who wore onions on their belts, as was the style at the time, when Sweet Donald uses Sam as a distraction, asking Slayer to show them how he killed another. Sam points out that he did so with a dagger, not an arrow, but it doesn't matter. He knows, and they know, that this is just a chance for them to watch him fail and make fun of him for it. Sam tries to turn away, but one of his boots disagrees, staying stuck in the mud. His so-called brothers laugh as he pulls it out. Sam goes off to find someone who won't be a total asshole to him, namely Gren. Gren calls him Slayer as well, and is confused when Sam asks him not to. It's a sick handle, bro. Sam remembers that Gren is not the sharpest Valyrian steel tool in the shed, and explains the problem. The other brothers are calling him Slayer sarcastically. But you did kill the other, Gren says, and so what if you were scared? Everyone gets scared, even Gren. He thinks maybe everyone is just pretending to be brave. And maybe pretending is how you make yourself brave. Damn, he isn't such a dim bulb after all. Sam points out that Gren didn't like it when Alistair Thorne called him Aurochs. Gren recalls that Alistair called Sam Sir Piggy. Isn't Slayer better than that bullshit? Well, sure, but Sam just wants to be Sam. Why is that so much to ask? Anyway, he gives all the credit to the dagger itself. That's what he told everyone. Some believed him, some didn't. Elsie Mormont seemed to be in between, though he did ask for all the dragonglass Sam had left. Sadly, there's not much of that. They left most of what Ghost found back on the fist, and what few dragonglass weapons they have won't be enough to hold back the enemy when they come in force.
And when's that going to happen? Sam wonders. Maybe it won't, Gren says. Hey, maybe they're afraid of us now. Sam hopes so, but suspects that for the dead, fear has fled along with everything else. Plus, they don't know that the dragonglass would work on the whites like it does on the others themselves. Sam just wishes John was still here. But only if he's alive, not if he's joined the dead. Sam doesn't understand why he's still alive, while so many other Watchmen have died, wishing he could just wake up to find out it was all a bad dream. Sorry, Sam, the nightmare is only going to get worse. The old bear finally puts in an appearance. Sam overhears him discussing with other rangers that Craster is kicking them out, despite the fact that both men and horses are still in sorry shape. Elsie Mormont calls Sam over. Several anxiety attacks later, Sam remembers how to talk, and Mormont says he's been thinking about the dragonglass. If this is the silver bullet for fighting white walkers, why are they only now finding out about this? The Night's Watch has forgotten its true purpose, Tarly. You don't build a wall 700 feet high to keep savages and skins from stealing women. The wall was made to guard the realms of men. And not against other men, which is all the wildlings are when you come right down to it. Too many years, Tarly. Too many hundreds of thousands of years. We lost sight of the true enemy. And now he's here. But we don't know how to fight him. Great speech, Elsie. I look forward to the many new policies you will get to implement. Sam says that the children of the forest would know where to find more dragonglass. Too bad they're all dead, the old bear says, before Craster interrupts him being 100% wrong about that to say that Gilly has given birth to a son. Mormont pretends to be happy for him. Craster says that he'll be happy when the crows have flown back home. Mormont protests that his men need time to recover their strength. But Craster says they're as strong as they're going to get. And if the LC doesn't have the nerve to cut the throats of the dying, he'll be glad to take care of them. What a generous host. The old bear wonders how Craster can call himself a friend of the watch, but Craster notes that he has one more mouth to feed. We can take him, Sam hears someone say, and then realizes that someone is him. Craster is furious at the idea of giving up his son to the crows. Apparently he has standards all of a sudden. Mormont, after trying and failing to set Sam on fire with his mind, orders Sam to step inside the keep. The old bear is angry. Oh, what a refreshing change of pace. He points out that they have no milk to feed the baby. Unless Gilly comes too. Well, she wants to, Sam says, but Mormont cuts him off. You had your orders to stay away from Craster's wives. Gilly's his daughter, Sam argues, but Mormont doesn't appreciate the Chinatown reference and tells Sam to go take care of Bannon. Too little, too late. Bannon has finally kicked the bucket. Sam says his wound killed him, along with the cold, but Dirk insists that Craster starved Bannon to death. He even calls Craster a bastard, which is convenient so that Sam can remind the audience that Craster hates being called a bastard. Thanks, Dirk. What would we do without you? Giant says that Craster has to take care of his own, and has given them what he can, but Dirk shoots back that Craster will feast as soon as they're gone, laughing at them all the while. They burn the dead man at sunset foregoing traditional burial rites so that Bannon doesn't come back from the cold. Sam thinks he sees Bannon come back anyway, if only for a moment. Elsie Mormont gives the eulogy, plugging in the details as necessary into his Dead Ranger email template. The worst part is the smell. Not that it smells bad, quite the opposite. It smells good. So much so that Sam throws up from the sheer horror of it. Dolorous Ed comes to comfort him, saying he also wanted to slice up Bannon with some applesauce, and he might do it to Sam if Sam dies first. Did I say comfort? I meant horrify. 
Cannibalism aside, Ed is also here to tell Sam they are riding at first light. When Craster hears that news, he gets in the Craster equivalent of a good mood and offers to feed them one last time. They gather round the tables on benches, with Craster, as always, claiming the only chair. The smell of roasting horse meat gets Sam's mouth watering, but it also makes him think of Bannon, so he grabs a half-rotten onion instead. He cuts off the rotten half and eats the rest raw, in what is in no way a metaphor for anything. There's bread as well, but only two loaves. When the brothers ask for more and get none, Clubfoot Carl starts complaining. Mormont tells him to cram it and be grateful for what he's got, but Carl says he wants some of what Craster's kept hidden. Craster declares he's got to keep food back to feed the women. Dirk seizes on that as admission he's got a secret pantry somewhere. Once again, George goes full Oliver Twist as the Watchmen start listing all the food they want. Mormont's Raven joins in the fun, calling corn, 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 over the LC's futile attempts to get everyone to be quiet. Carl finally tells Mormont to stuff his bread in his ears if he doesn't want to hear them, unless he's already eaten his. The old bear bears his teeth and orders Carl to sit down and shut up. And Carl is just about to do it when Craster stands up, brand new shiny axe in hand, and tells Carl and his cronies to go sleep outside with empty bellies. One of them calls Craster a bastard, and when he demands to know which one, Carl says they all know it's true. Craster leaps across the table to cut Carl down, but Dirk moves quicker and cuts Craster's throat. Mormont is aghast, declaring that they have violated divine law by killing their host, but Dirk says there are no laws beyond the wall, and he threatens the women next unless they give up their food. Mormont, refusing one last time to understand what's happening, tells Dirk he'll lose his head for this. Then Garth of Greenaway and Alo Lophand block his path, and when Mormont tries to take Alo's dagger, Alo stabs him with it. At this point, Sam disassociates. Lucky him. Well, I say lucky, but things have only gotten worse when he comes to. One of the Garths killed the other one. Another one of the mutineers fell to his death, trying to climb to the loft, and the few remaining loyal men have fled, including Gren, Dywin, and Dolorous Ed. Among those left behind, several are gorging on horse meat, while Alo rapes one of the women. Sam is cradling the old bear's head in his lap. Mormont tells him to run for the wall and tell them all he knows about the dragonglass and also to tell Jorah to take the black, and that he is forgiven. It's his dying wish. Damn, I never thought anything Jorah-related could tug at my heartstrings, but here we are. All Sam wants to do is sleep without having to wake up, and he knows one of the mutineers will eventually grant him that wish. At least he's not afraid anymore. But he should be, a voice says. Three of Craster's wives stand over him, two of the older women flanking Gilly and her baby. They tell Sam that the mutineers are busy eating and raping, and Sam should get the hell out of Dodge before they come back. They have horses, and, as Gilly says, he promised to help her. Sam insists that he promised to get John to help her, and anyway, he has to stay and take care of Elsie Mormont. But one of the older women points out that Mormont is already dead. You can't help him now, so just take Gilly and go. Where? Sam asks. Someplace warm. The two older women say as one. Gilly cries and begs Sam to take her with him. If he doesn't, they'll take the baby. And who's they? Craster's other sons. The white cold is rising, says one of the older women, and the sons are coming with it. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Samwell 2. What did you make of this one, Manu? 
By now, we all know zombie stories come with the stretch where the real enemies are the living, those that have seen the apocalypse and have decided that it's every man for themselves and we should just take as much as we can. The mutineers at Crestor's Keep are the real walking dead in every way that matters. Morality, justice, and hope are dead. The living have looked at the face of death and chosen cowardice. But not our favorite craven, Samwell chooses life and takes Gilly and her newborn away, even if he needs a little nudge from Craster's wives. And the old bear, Jayor, in his last moments on this mortal coil, choosing duty and forgiveness, one last message for his son Jorah. It's a harrowing chapter, one a long time coming as the great ranging has proven catastrophic to men and morale. This is what the kingdoms are up against. Not just the others and their walking dead, but the selfishness and cowardice of the living unwilling to stand together. Sam's first chapter in Storm of Swords was all about the eldritch horror of the Other. The White Walkers and their zombie army not only wiped out most of Elsie Mormont's men, but also inspired a primal dread in the survivors, a sense of being hunted by something both more and less than human. They are behind us. They are still behind us. They are taking us one by one. The terror was so overpowering it seemed to make humanity itself irrelevant, all previous conflicts rendered moot. And now, after Sam killed a White Walker and the Watch finally gets some breathing room, well, I guess it's time to get back to fighting each other. You can see that pattern play out with Stannis in A Dance with Dragons, with Daenerys in Season 8, and now with the central characters of House of the Dragon, as the prophecy about uniting Westeros against the Long Night winds up contributing to a war that's about to tear Westeros apart. If Sam 1 was about an otherworldly threat, Sam 2 is about threats that are all too familiar in our world. Rape, murder, and hunger. Even without the White Walkers actually showing up, it manages to be almost as dreadful as Sam's previous chapter. At the end of that first chapter, Sam made it out of the frying pan. In this chapter, he finds out he has escaped right into the fire. And like I said, the opening lines of this chapter are pretty much perfect. Up in the loft, a woman was giving birth noisily, while below, a man lay dying by the fire. Samuel Tarley could not say which frightened him more. Life and death. How every story starts and how every story ends. Total opposites that always go hand in hand, here literally sharing the same place. There's a harmony in that. Or at least there would be, except that in the context of Craster's Keep, and the context around that of the White Walkers, and the context around that of the hell world that is Westeros, there is no way to achieve any kind of enlightened perspective about life and death. Ah, the circle of life, isn't it beautiful? Nope, it's just two nightmares. No, that's exactly right. Because Sam knows the birth of a son, another son to Craster, means death. And by the chapter's end, we know that doesn't just mean that boy's death, but also that boy will likely become a harbinger of death himself, and other probably, like Craster's other sons. It recalls Cersei's lines to Sansa in Maegor's Holdfast during the Blackwater. The men will bleed out there, and you will bleed in here. Bloodshed for death, bloodshed for life. And so Sam is as frightened of the birth as he is of the death. The first of many ironic inversions that define this chapter. Birth is as bad as death. Their sanctuary is no sanctuary at all. Sam is mocked rather than praised for his heroism, and ultimately even guessed right. The most sacred of traditions in a world where winter is always coming can't keep everyone together. The Night's Watch may have escaped the others, but the cold crept inside with them. 
No matter how many blankets they pile on poor Bannon, all he can say is, I'm cold. It's literally true, but it's also symbolic. That bone-deep chill stands in for PTSD, what they used to call shell shock in a military context like this one. The horror of what happened outside lingers and reverberates. They haven't really escaped it. Does the cold bring the others, or the others bring the cold? The death of Bannon posits a secret third thing. The cold is already here, with or without the others. The PTSD reading is spot on, I think. This chapter reminds me a lot of The Things They Carried, a short story by Tim O'Brien from a collection of the same name. It's about soldiers in Vietnam and starts off by listing the literal things they carry, guns, ammo, cigarettes, rations, etc. But as the story continues, the things they carry are really great sorrow, horror, a phantom pain. These are the real things we carry after war, the scars inside and out, the moments we wish we could have back because of the perspective war has given us. We see it play out here with Sam listing off all the medicines and herbs Brown Barnard had carried with them from Castle Black at the start of the expedition. Mirish fire, mustard salve, tansy, poppy, etc. All lost after the white attack. Then Sam notes that Hake knew Herblore, but he too was lost, and with that, the knowledge he carried. And as the chapter goes on, we see that they are left carrying just pain, hunger, cold, death. And with the old bear at the end, regret and shame, both as a Lord Commander and as a father. The cold is also representative of Craster, whose attitude towards his guests is not what you'd call warm. He watches Bannon suffer with indifference, George writes. Not concern, but also not hatred. Just indifference. Which in a way is even worse. It would be one thing if Craster had a principled stance against the Watchmen who fucked around and found out on a colossal scale. Instead, he just doesn't care. Bannon lives? Fine by Craster. Bannon dies? That's fine by Craster too. The world may have ended for the Watchmen, but not for Craster. Because for him, the others are part of the world. They're part of the status quo. In a way, Craster embodies the same cosmic horror as the White Walkers. Craster is a godlike figure within the walls of his keep. He's like Kronos, father of Zeus, Hera, Hades, and so forth in Greek mythology. He devoured his own children to avoid a prophecy that said one would overthrow him. Craster's indifference is that of the gods towards humanity. I could save you, but I won't. I won't actively kill you, I'll just watch you die. I really love that read of Craster as Cronus, because there's almost a perverse humor in this chapter about the gods. The constant refrain of Craster being a godly man when he's made a deal with the literal devils, while he begets daughters on his daughters and named them wives. Like you said in the recap, which gods are these that he square with? I think back to El Viejo Misterioso de Homer Simpson, you know, the crazy chili pepper episode with Johnny Cash as a space coyote. My favorite episode, very influential on my tastes as, as, a, as a young man, as Tiny Emmett. <laughs> In there, Homer goes searching for his soulmate, asking his chums at the bar. When Homer asks the bartender if he could be Homer's soulmate, Moe responds, I'm more of a well-wisher in that I don't wish you any specific harm which is basically what Craster's whole deal here is with the Night's Watch. In fact, Moe as a cruel, bitter old man feels like a good comp for Craster. There's also some fun dialogue from the old wildling. Crows. When did a black bird ever bring, a, bring good to a man's hall? Feels like a bastardized version of dark wings, dark words. That's how they say it up here. 
Craster's passive cruelty is emphasized by him chomping on a sausage while he says it would be kinder to kill Bannon than try and keep him alive. That just adds to the absurdity of Sam trying and failing to spoon-feed Bannon some soup. It keeps dribbling down his chin. While inches away, Craster gorges himself on the food he denies to the watch. Right away, there's this tension in the air, given voice by Bedwick, a.k.a. Giant. Another inversion, as Bedwick is actually a little guy, a giant only in spirit. It's just a little guy. We love a short king. We sure do, and you can see that as he stands up to Craster, telling him the watch didn't ask his opinion on how to handle the wounded. They asked for food and fire, the most basic of necessities, and even those Craster is holding back. If the opening lines weren't enough, the first spoken dialogue in this chapter says it all. Craster calls Bannon dead already and offers to end him. Giant fires back, saying, we didn't ask. Already, three paragraphs into this chapter, we see the tension is thick between Craster and the Night's Watch. This chapter is in no way a reprieve from the horrors of Sam 1. Bannon even repeating, I'm cold, in the first several pages adds a rhythm to the chapter, much like sobbing, Sam took another step, did in the previous one. Yeah, that's a great call. So much of this chapter is about that sense of rhythm, of repetition. This hellish sense of being trapped in a loop. Sam keeps trying to feed Bannon. Bannon just keeps saying he's cold. There's no way out of it. It makes sense that we're moving in circles, because the Watchmen's journey beyond the wall is coming full circle. In A Clash of Kings, we saw the Great Ranging make its way north. First the village of White Tree, then Craster's Keep, and then the Fist of the First Men. In A Storm of Swords, George spins that structure around and plays it backward, as the Watch retreat through the same places they advanced through. Sam's first chapter is on the Fist. Now his second chapter is at Craster's Keep. And his third chapter is at White Tree. Or at least a village Sam hopes is White Tree. Doesn't seem like it actually is. This chapter is the flip side to the first time we were at Craster's Keep, from John's POV. Back then, there were 200 rangers here, on their way to meet 100 more. Now, all of them together, there are barely 40. Then, they were in good shape, healthy and well-supplied. Now, they're wounded, traumatized, lacking in basic supplies, and slowly starving to death. The reversal of setting is great, as on the way north for Sam, John, and the rest, they were plunging into the great unknown. Who knows what's out there? On retreat, these places are familiar, and theoretically could be a source of comfort and a sign that, hey, we're almost back at the wall. But at each location, untold horrors await. That which ought to be familiar and friendly has been turned against them. And Sam tortures himself by thinking at length about the men they had with them on the way up who would know how to help Bannon, who had the supplies to do it with. All of them lost, leaving only Sam, who thinks he's just not good enough. Sam has been anxious ever since we met him. His life hasn't given him much reason to believe in the power of positive thinking, and now he's got dreams of the dead chasing him every time he closes his eyes. Rereading this chapter, it almost struck me that this was more Samwell 1B as opposed to Samwell 2, kind of in the same way that Episodes 1 and Episode 6 of House of the Dragon served as dual premieres, especially for the characters of Rhaenyra and Alicent. Sam 1 is so focused on the terror of the White Walkers, the escape from the Fist, and the long, cold march back home. It was a great introduction to Sam, 
But here, situated amongst other humans, we get a new level of interiority, how he perceives his vows and women and Westerosi laws and customs. It feels like we are meeting Sam for the first time again, in a more political sense, in that dichotomy you posed about Sam's first two chapters up top. The difference is that now, all the Watchmen are stuck in hell with him. Even as Craster's Keep has given them a temporary refuge, it's also drained the adrenaline that kept them going out there in the cold. Now they have time on their hands. Too much time on their hands. And all they can do is think about what they haven't got. Mostly what they haven't got is food. And George does such a good job setting this up in the background. Instead of the White Walkers as the monsters on the margins, hunger is the ultimate enemy that will tear this fragile piece apart. Bannon's refrain of, I'm cold, we talked about earlier, that gives this chapter its meter, that becomes, I'm hungry, later on, if not in those exact words. Also worth noting that the men talking about getting more food out of Craster by any means necessary aren't doing so whenever Elsie Mormont comes around. They know he wouldn't stand for it, and his authority still holds sway. For now. At this point, the men of the Watch still value the idea that they could make it back to Castle Black where food is, if not abundant, at least much more plentiful than here. They believe in Mormont's power because his leadership will keep them together in order to achieve that goal. By the end of the chapter, they will no longer believe. Again, every element is inverted from how it was when they came through here in the last book. Now, speaking of inversions, it's like we got the Long Night in Sam 1, and now we get the War of the Five Kings played out on the smallest scale. In the face of death and apocalypse, authority and custom and law and institution have all fallen away. The only constant is Craster himself. Hideously unchanged, still the worst person in the world. It's not enough that he impregnated his daughter. He also has to complain when Gilly makes noise during childbirth. Imagine how hellish this is for Gilly, even by the standards of her generally shitty existence. Childbirth is already one of the most painful and challenging things you can go through, especially with no medicine to dull the pain. Under the best of circumstances, Gilly would still have to fear for her life and the life of the child. Now add in the knowledge of what's going to happen to that kid. If it's a boy, Craster will rip the child from you and give it to literal actual monsters to transform it into one of them. And even if it's a girl, the relatively better outcome, her fate will be the same as Gilly's beaten and raped by her father, forced to serve him, with no possibility of a life outside his walls. So that's what you're dealing with. And now, if you should so much as scream in response, Craster threatens to beat you up mid-childbirth. Christ. There's a mini-parallel to Jamie 4, which we covered a couple episodes ago. Confronting tremendous pain, he tells Kyburn he'll scream. Hell, he'll scream very loudly. That's essentially what the midwife coaches Gilly to do here, scream to confront the pain. But Gilly is denied even that. And Craster also later calls out women, the way they wail, which makes me think of Joffrey's Blade, which we just saw for the first time last chapter, though it won't get its name of Widow's Wail until a bit later. It's an exaggeration of familiar traits. I've never met anyone who set up a rape factory as part of a deal with ice demons, but I have met people who prioritize their own comfort over anyone else's needs. If you're suffering, they don't want to hear about it, because you're bothering them and they're the center of the universe. They create this chilling effect of silence, enforced with the implicit threat of violence. You see it in the nervous looks everyone else gives them, the brittle laughter, 
the muttered apologies. What George is doing here is very similar to what David Lynch does in Twin Peaks, mixing cosmic horror with domestic abuse, suggesting that these are flip sides of the same coin. The abstract spirit world of the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks, where shape-shifting demons subsist on human pain, exists on a continuum, with the grounded reality of Laura Palmer's suffering at the hands of her father. In both cases, it all comes down to blood. So what's the difference between the devil and your dad? George reminds us that this is a cycle that won't end with Gilly by describing how Craster recently beat one of the younger girls, almost to death. This is deliberately unpleasant writing. George wants to make you feel sick, make you feel angry, make you feel you wish you could do something, anything, which locks you into the perspective of the Watchmen. It's absolutely sickening, and the fact that it exists in between two zombie apocalypse horror chapters really challenges the reader. Which of these is truly the most horrific? While a magical ice zombie Armageddon is hard for one to fathom, the violence of cruel men along gender and patriarchal lines is very real to us, the reader. And some Watchmen react with shock and horror to Craster's behavior, but others are into it. The Night's Watch includes men of decency and honor who chose to be here for the best of reasons. It also includes many men who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, like Will, sent into exile for nothing more than killing a deer claimed by someone more powerful than him. But the Watch also includes unrepentant rapists and murderers. Clubfoot Carl's only objection to how things work at Craster's Keep is that he's not in charge of it. He wants to be the foreman of the rape factory. I think the key point is that both the men who want to help these women and those who want to hurt them have to knuckle under to a third group, the leadership of the Watch, whose policy is his roof, his rule. That phrase seems deliberately designed to be familiar to modern audiences. I can't tell you how often I've heard overly strict or downright abusive parenting justified as my roof, my rules. Ronald Harclay doesn't like what Craster does, but he's not going to do anything about it, because Craster is a friend to the Watch. In one of our recent podcasts on Frontiers episode, we went in-depth on Orwell's 1984 as it influenced Metal Gear Solid V and how the concept of doublespeak factored into it. The use of friend here is the ultimate doublespeak. What does friend even mean? Craster does help the Night's Watch, gives them roof and fire and food, as little and begrudgingly as he does. But what kind of friend is this? One who beats his daughter wives and provides as little as possible? One whose sons are being turned into the very enemy the Watch was formed to fight against? There's a real-world parallel with empires like the U.S. giving aid or working with groups that come back to target the U.S. Our alliances with the Saudi regime for oil, despite its connections to overt terrorism, or say how we funded the Mujahideen against the Soviets for those very weapons to be trained back on the U.S. military. This is the Watch's own deal with the devil. Just as Craster sold his soul to the others, the Watch is selling their soul to Craster, overlooking what he's doing and why he's doing it, because he serves their interests as well. Or at least, it seems like he does. You can see George constructing this ethical argument through Sam's thoughts. Craster has provided what ought to be the bare minimum, four walls and a roof against the deprivations of winter. Does that really entitle the Night's Watch to look the other way? Doesn't that constitute a violation of their vows? Here, Sam begins to formulate the argument that John will make out loud in A Dance with Dragons, that when the Watchmen swore to defend the realms of men, that included the wildlings. How could it not, unless you think of the wildlings as less than human? 
A woman was a woman, even a wildling woman, Sam thinks. It's the same argument Davos and Maester Pylos make about the wildlings when they hear what's going on north of the Wall. Men are men. We already got Bedwick, short king, and now we get Samuel mm-hmm. Tarly, feminist king. This chapter <laughs> really has it all. I love his line in season two of the show in regards to Gilly. You can't steal her. She's not a goat. She's not property, despite how Craster and even the Night's Watch talk about the daughter wives. He's already thinking in a more evolved way than just about anyone else around him, and cutting through some of the bullshit in the Night's Watch vows, or rather, how those vows have been warped and weaponized to other ends. I think of A Song of Ice and Fire as Final Fantasy. Each Final Fantasy game is the last great epic of the world it's created in, just like, say, Lord of the Rings kind of functions for Middle-Earth and A Song of Ice and Fire does for Westeros give or take a Jon Snow spinoff. As we watch institutions and laws crumble in the face of the end of the world, I imagine we will need some characters to survive and help rebuild in a way that makes them stronger. Sam is one of the prime vehicles for this, I think. Already someone who defies normativity in his gender performance and someone we expect to survive most of the story. So here we start to see the formulation of Sam as a real political thinker, skills he will deploy on a smaller scale by book's end to get John elected to Lord Commander. He's examining the basic givens of the Night's Watch, that Craster is a friend, that the vow should be limited to those south of the Wall. We should help Gilly, Sam thinks, and the stakes are only raised when he overhears that her baby is a boy. The Watch overlooks Craster's crimes because he's providing them sanctuary from the others. But now he's going to resupply the others with his own defenseless child, also conveniently removing any other man to stand between him and the women. This not only undercuts whatever moral authority the Watch might have, it undercuts their mission itself. Craster is no friend to the Watch. The problem is that there is no vessel for making good on this. We'll see that when the Watch rises up against Craster later. But even here, we have Sam, one of the most well-intentioned Watchmen, and he's too afraid to ask for more food, let alone stick up for the women. George sets the reader up to want a righteous reversal of the order, and then poisons that righteousness by reminding us that the Watchmen aren't a team of selfless superheroes. Like Qui-Gon Jinn says in The Phantom Menace, I didn't actually come here to free slaves. Even the best of the Watchmen are afraid. And while the only time you can be brave is when you're afraid, it's always easier to make the opposite choice and give in to your fear. Sam steps outside to find that the sun is shining, the snow is melting, and the temperature is, well, cold, but not as cold as it usually is. And this really throws the reader for a loop after the icy hellscape of Sam's last chapter. Winter wasn't coming anymore, it had come, in force. And now it's like winter has decided to leave again. So long, see you next year. The others haven't attacked. Nor will they, says Craster, because he's a godly man. It's completely counterintuitive. Inside, Sam only thought of the cold, how Bannon keeps repeating, it's cold, and then he steps outside and it's... warm? You'd expect the opposite. Maybe because the real cold is inside the hut, their death is there with them, the call, or rather the cold, is coming from inside the house. And while inside men go cold and hungry and despair, outside is just full of life somehow, even if that involves killing the dying animals. Sentries patrol, fires are fed, axemen cut down more wood for the flames. Some are even taking archery practice and having a good old time at that. 
There's something so perverse about how the Night's Watch carries out their ordinary chores in this context. The apocalypse only held at bay by incestuous rape and child murder. How can Sam enjoy this peace, knowing what paid for it? Knowing who paid for it? Well, you learn to blind yourself. You go away inside, as Jamie says. What a great transition, because among the archers is Almer of the Kingswood Brotherhood, an older ranger of the Watch, and he comes off as an Angai if he was 40 years older. Almer is a minor character in A Song of Ice and Fire, hello Micah, but he does seem to be one of the Night's Watchmen loyal to John, congratulating him upon election and holding the wall itself when Tormund passes through. We learn quite a bit about the Kingswood Brotherhood here, which seems to be a concept George came up with in between Clash and Storm. We learn of its members, Simon Toyn and the Smiling Knight, Wenda the White Fawn, and Fletcher Dick. We learn of their exploits too. Almer claims to have stolen a kiss from Elia Martell on her way through the woods, and even injured Sir Gerald Hightower with one of his perfectly placed arrows. Stepping away from Sam for a second, you can see how the fleshing out of the Kingswood Brotherhood serves a couple storylines. It acts as a parallel for the Brotherhood Without Banners, which we've spent some time with, but we'll really get to meet uh, in our next Arya chapter with the appearance of Beric Dondarrion. Both groups seem to play on images of Robin Hood and his Merry Men, so this is a little warm-up to that effect. The memory of the Kingswood Brotherhood are also relevant to Jaime Lannister, who was still young and not cynical when he served as squire for Lord Craycall and fought the Kingswood. This is where Jaime really first made his name, and what he imagined to be the start of a long career as a beloved knight. Of course, we'll find out he became more smiling knight than anything else. But coming back to Sam, I think the narrative of the King's Watch Brotherhood also represents the platonic ideal of what the mutineers wanted to be, breaking free from the yoke of the kings to live amongst themselves in the wood. They've heard Ulmer's story some 300 times. Why, why can't we do that? Why couldn't the men of the watch have something like that? But the mutineers are more like the bloody mummers, the nightmare version of the scenario. Instead of fighting great knights and stealing kisses from princesses, they are murderers and rapers. It's the same old story, innocence and experience. Ulmer hasn't just heard stories about the outlaw life, he lived it. But now, years later, all he has are the songs. All he has is the memory of kissing a princess, which means more to him than the gold they stole. Whatever they bought with it is long gone. Only the memory remains. For Ulmer, that's romantic. It was the high point of his life. We can only imagine what it was like for Elia, probably pretty frightening. One of the most prominent members of the Kingswood Brotherhood was the Smiling Knight, and I always loved Jamie's description of him. Cruelty and chivalry all jumbled up together. That's a perfect description of A Song of Ice and Fire, and many of the characters within it. Heroes and villains sharing the same skin, all depending on how you tell their story. Sweet Donald Hale is trying to escape Ulmer's stories, this endless loop of memory and projection, when he spots Sam. Come tell us your story, Sweet Donald says. How'd you kill the White Walker, Slayer? Ah, Slayer, the new moniker that Sam has been crowned with, which has been peppered in all chapter. Giant calls him that too very early on, the archers tease him about it, even Gren uses it. Him too, thinks Sam? Why can't he just be Sam? Names, of course, are one of George's favorite things. Naming things, playing around with many names for the same thing, having characters change their name, forget their name, reclaim their name. This is most prominent in Theon and Arya chapters, but it's a recurring motif in nearly all his point of views. Samuel Tarly just wants to be Sam. Sir Piggy was a derisive moniker, body shaming him and his abilities. 
Slayer is used by many as a joke, not believing he slew that other at all. Hell, I can imagine Tarly even being a sore spot for him at times, too. If he wasn't the firstborn son to Randall Tarly, if he wasn't a Tarly at all, perhaps he wouldn't even, even have been sent to the Wall. I think for Sam, the problem is he was never perceived as Sam in the first place, except by perhaps his mom and his siblings. His father saw him for what he wasn't, not a soldier, not a warrior, not even a man by his standards. And upon arrival at the Wall, much the same from Alistair Thorne and most of the other Night's Watchmen. It was John who saw Sam for who he was, and it was the case of who Sam was, clever and learned, that had John vouching to Maester Eamon on behalf of Sam during graduation. That's very much why Sam is sure John would never call him Sam the Slayer. It was such a smart move to have most of the Watchmen not believe Sam's story. Like this chapter as a whole, it undercuts the mythic grandeur of Sam's previous chapter by bringing us back down to Earth. Again, stories are all about perspective. We saw Sam kill the White Walker, but these guys didn't. For them, Sam's story is like Ulmer's story, an exaggeration that's more about making yourself look like a hero than it is about what really happened. This is in spite of the fact that these men know damn well that the White Walkers are back. If that's true, why can't they believe that a dragonglass dagger could kill one? Well, because it's Sam. And these men don't take Sam seriously any more than Randall did. This is the bitter irony of Sam's story. Even after confronting his fears and defeating the other, here he is, his boot stuck in the mud, the laughter of the men who are supposed to be his brothers in his ears. And he's thinking that his father was right. Sam has no right to exist at all, not when so many brave, better men are dead. Even if every watchman had a dragonglass dagger, and they defeated the White Walkers and saved the day, Westeros would still be a feast for crows, in part because of the violent posturing of martial masculinity, this contempt for men who don't want to kill for a living. As you were saying, what's more frightening? An ice demon hunting you? Or that even after you defeat the ice demon, your fellow man still doesn't care about you, and part of you agrees with them, thinks they're right not to care about you? It never even occurs to Sam that he might be the bravest of all of them, that as John said, he has a queer sort of courage all his own. His father's rejection just cuts too deep. Coward. Craven. These words are written in Sam's soul, and he can't erase them, no matter what he does. Something I love about George's writing is how he stresses that moments of apotheosis don't last. The glow fades, and when it's gone, your issues are waiting for you like they never left. That's what happened to Robert after he won the crown. You still have to wake up the next day, and face the world as it is. Don't stories ever end? Bilbo Baggins whispers to himself. Nothing ever ends, Dr. Manhattan responds. As you say, all Sam wants is to be Sam. Not a character from a story, not a projected image he has to live up to, but just himself. A person with inherent dignity and worth simply by virtue of existing, regardless of how he looks to an audience, the eye of the beholder. It's the same logic that leads him to extend empathy to Gilly. A wildling woman is still a woman, and Sam would still be Sam, even if he never was the Slayer. And Sam's view is valid, but God bless my favorite A Song of Ice and Fire himbo, Gren. Mm -hmm. And being a little too thick to get Sam's complaint, he stumbles into a bit of truth on his own. People may mock Sam with his Slayer moniker, but that doesn't make it untrue. 
You killed the other, literally the first person to do so in a thousand years. Thousands of years, probably. The fact that you felt fear is besides the point. Someone once said that when you're afraid is the only time you can be brave. Sometimes who says a thing makes the world of difference, too. Gren clearly loves Sam. He put himself in mortal danger trying to keep Sam on his feet in the last chapter. Yeah, he may riff on nicknames for Sam, but that's not from a place of derision, but from a place of love. Yeah, not everyone rejects Sam. Some believe him. The same loyalists who refuse to join the mutiny and instead fall back on Castle Black. I love how this scene with Gren plays out. At first, it seems like Gren is being thick as a castle wall as uh, George describes Dunk, not understanding that the other men are calling Sam Slayer sarcastically. But really, Gren has an important point to make. Sam doesn't have to think about himself the way those men do, or the way his father did. He really did slay the other. He really was incredibly brave in that moment. And even if no one else knows that, he does. And Gren does too. It's that existential heroism George loves. No chance and no choice. The moments that don't make it into the songs in-universe, but are part of this song, the Song of Ice and Fire. Slayer might be a taunt for the other men, but it means something different, coming from Gren. Who tells the story matters as much as the content of the story. That's why Gren says the nickname of Aurochs was an insult from Sir Alistair, but it might not be from his friends. From John's POV way back in Book 1, Gren and the others were bullies teaming up on him. But Donald Noy changed his perspective and Gren reinforces that here, telling Sam that at first John terrified him. John was the villain of Gren's story. Sam thinks that because he was scared, he couldn't have been brave. But, like you say, Ned argued otherwise. Bravery is acting in spite of your fear. If you got rid of fear entirely, that wouldn't make you a true and proper hero. As Sam realizes, the whites are what the absence of fear looks like, and it's horrifying. No fear, no mercy. No love. Nothing at all inside. More to the point, Gren is 100% right that courage is a performance. It's not something that exists intrinsically in one person and not in another. It's a mask you wear. It's a choice you make. And this is an important insight. All of these people are performing for each other. There is no objective standard to measure them by, because even the heroes in the stories are just men, like Ulmer and his brotherhood. Pretending is how you get brave. You fake it until you make it. If only we could be honest with each other about that, so much would be different. One of my favorite little moments in this chapter is when Mormont returns and he actually calls out Sam by name, Tarly. And Sam is like, wait, who, me? Just a smidge of comedy, spending paragraphs on how he wants to just be called by his name. And when it actually happens, Sam freaks out. Sam credits the dragon glass, not his wherewithal, which don't sell yourself short, buddy but it launches into a larger discussion of Dragonglass, which coming into the horrors of this chapter, yeah, Slam, Sam did slay an other with Dragonglass. We didn't know it could do that. More importantly, the Night's Watch didn't know that, or even worse, they forgot that they knew that. It seems like a real eye-opener to Mormont, who is one of the Watchmen who actually took Sam's story about killing the other to heart. It's a stark reminder of who the real enemy is, why the Watch was formed, why the Wall was raised. The wildlings fall into the realms of men in the Night's Watch vows, an observation Sam made himself when thinking about Gilly earlier. The etymology of dragonglass is broached too. Is it actually made by dragons? 
Sam clarifies it as obsidian, frozen fire, volcanic rock. We need to find Dragonclass someplace else, maybe a hint towards the man from Dragonstone sailing north by the end of Storm of Swords. Of course, on reread, this is all very tragic, as we know Mormont is realizing all of this way too late, moments before his death. At least Sam is present here, so someone is able to pass on this knowledge. Yeah, it's a great mix of comedy and tragedy in this scene. I love Mormont bitching at the man on guard. Who in seven hells do you think goes there? The LC is an interesting figure in Sam's story. On one hand, Sam is scared of him, and Mormont frequently insults him. On the other hand, you get the sense that the old bear is less hateful than just permanently grumpy. This is how he talks to everyone, and he takes Sam more seriously than most. He wants the best for him. And in his own gruff way, Mormont is trying to mentor Sam, which Randall clearly gave up on in favor of outright contempt for his son. And like most mentors in genre fiction, Mormont is obviously doomed, especially because he's finally figured out what he should have been doing all along. Mormont acknowledges that the wildlings are their fellow man at the end of the day, and you don't build a 700-foot-tall ice wall to stop humans. That's great to hear. Then again, Mormont really should have had this breakthrough back in Book 1 when, you know, a literal zombie tried to kill him in his bed. But even after that, by the time he got beyond the wall, Mormont was more focused on Mance than the White Walkers. Enlightenment is not necessarily permanent. Mormont is an old man, set in his ways, and he is forever fighting the last war. Sam thinks he'd almost forgotten about Mance after all that has happened. Yeah, for good reason. But just as many of the Watchmen can't let go of the idea of Sam as a useless coward, Mormont can't let go of the ideas he was raised with. For him, the Wildlings will always be the other. Craster interrupts Mormont's ruminations to announce the birth of a son a son that he uses as an excuse to tell Mormont and his men to leave. Got another mouth to feed, because that's absolutely what Crasser does with the sons. Feed them and provide them their every need. It struck me on this reread just how absurd it is that Mormont feels the need to congratulate Craster for this. We're going to get into Red Wedding comparisons in a minute here, and something I love about Catalan's chapters in this book especially is that they examine moments in which polite protocols like this break down when lives built on customs give way to the abyss. Craster feels no such need to stick to the script, openly scathing and brutal about the wounded watchmen and their chances of survival. One thing he says is true, though. Winter is coming. Craster is a monster for all seasons, but the scarcity of winters that can last years bring the worst out of people. Absent traditions like guest rate, that is. Sam, unconsciously, reflexively, says the watch can take him, not even sure that he even said those words. It's a great little flourish by George just writing, we could take him, someone squeak, and the reader immediately knows it was Sam, because who else would it be? I think this is another case where Sam's bravery, or boldness perhaps, outpaces what he thinks of himself. Sometimes we need to be pushed to the brink to really know who we are inside, like facing down white walkers, or worse. Hunger. Yeah, I've always loved that little writer's trick where you have the character hear themselves say something like it's someone else saying it. That's very true to life. I think we've all blurted out something on instinct and then our conscious mind like catches up and has to assess the damage. Again, it's a question of the social norms being observed here clashing against the life and death stakes of what they're talking about. The tone of grim absurdity continues. As I said, it's a chapter all about ironic inversions. 
Craster is outraged about the idea of giving his son to the crows. Oh, what, as opposed to the White Walkers? As for Mormont, all he can do is bellow at Sam that he's been told to keep away from Craster's wives. Like Craster is a friend to the Watch, this is a phrase repeated to the point of meaninglessness, just like Bannon repeating, I'm cold, no matter what they do for him. Craster is flaunting his inhumanity in their faces. He is sending their wounded back out into the cold, and when Mormont says that they would have trouble feeding the baby, all I can say is that he'd be better off risking that than he would being left for the others. Slim odds are better than none. It's only Sam, who stumbles over his own words as much as his feet, who lacks the aura of patriarchal authority and competence surrounding men like J.R. Mormont. It's only Sam who wants to help. Bannon passes away, and Dirk says he was starved. All the men of the Watch are being starved, which leads to the ironic cruelty of Bannon's burning body smelling good. Something foul would be preferred. No one wants to have their mouth water for human flesh. It sells the extreme state of hunger these men are in, but also foreshadows so much coming in terms of eating humans. Bran and his direwolf, or cannibals and skagos, or just the very literal feast for crows. Human meats back on the menu, boys. And on top of everything, I gotta believe our boys in black probably just smell like shit right now, adding another layer of insult to Bannon smelling so sweet. Going back to the things the Night's Watch forgot, Sam notes back at Castle Black, they buried their dead. I feel like if the Night's Watch truly remembered the enemy it was created for, this would have never come to pass. But you can see how the thousands of years wait for another long night, and perhaps more importantly, the influx of southern knights and holy men as a result of Targaryen conflicts with the faith may have overwritten some of the traditions and customs at the Wall. Bannon's death brings different things out of different people. After lashing out at Craster earlier, Dywin defends him here. That's not because Dywin had a change of heart, or cared about Bannon less than the rest of them. It's certainly not because he's less hungry. It's because what Dywin cares about most is getting as many of the survivors back to the wall as possible. It was worth fighting with Craster while Bannon was still alive. But now, he's beyond help. And Dirk, openly calling Craster a bastard, could disrupt the unit cohesion that is essential to making the last leg of the journey. But Dirk is past caring about that. There's a layer of dramatic irony here in that the reader knows Dirk was part of Chet's mutiny conspiracy. He also, however, directly expresses the bigotry that seems to work on a more subconscious level for someone like Elsie Mormont. He's a bloody wildling, is all he is. Dirk is right that Craster is no friend of theirs, and he's probably right that if they walked away, Craster would feast and laugh at them. But Dirk is wrong that this has anything to do with Craster being a wildling. Not all wildlings act this way. Not even most of them, we've already seen that. Through John's chapters, we have seen firsthand how the Wildling Coalition is a mixture of many cultures, and within each of those cultures there are individuals like anywhere else. Moreover, the character that most resembles Craster elsewhere in the story is Walder Frey, who is, you know, very much not a Wildling. Dirk says Bannon would agree with him, which is very convenient because Bannon is no longer around to contradict him. It's easy to rally around dead people, because they can believe whatever you want them to. We'll see that in a more positive direction in the very next chapter, with the Brotherhood regarding Robert. To be fair, it's not like the leadership of the Night's Watch has a great narrative going. In retrospect, it's significant that when Mormont is delivering the eulogy, he can't remember where Bannon is from, and has to have someone remind him. That exposes everything festering under the thin veneer of vows holding them together. This is the guy 
You're trusting to keep you safe, keep you fed, get you back in one piece, and he does not know you. He doesn't know where you're from. He doesn't know about the life you lived before you were one of his anonymous soldiers, all of you wearing the same black cloak like built-in funeral shrouds. And when you die, he won't remember you either. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger, Ned told Rob, and Mormont has failed this test of leadership. It's not even that he doesn't care. It's that nothing he has ever done or learned has prepared him for this moment, when he has lost so many of his men so quickly that he can't keep any of it straight anymore. The center cannot hold. One of the most sickening of the chapter's inversions comes when the smell of Bannon makes Sam hungry. What are your vows worth in a situation so desperate you want to eat your comrade's corpse? Wind and words. Thankfully, Dolorous Ed is there with his signature sense of humor, his are-these-even-jokes sense of humor. As brutal as it is for Ed to tell Sam he'll be tempted to eat Sam next, Ed's little comedy routine is a way of dealing with these unbearable circumstances. It's one of the defense mechanisms Jamie talks about. You laugh at a world of horrors to try and rob them of their power. Does it work? Well, not in the sense that it gets rid of the horrors, but it does in the sense that it helps Ed get through them. I think it's part of why he stays loyal through what happens next. Craster orders a feast in celebration of the Night's Watch departing the next morning, feasting on horses and beer and bread. Well, feeding, he calls it. He only has so much he can spare. The amount of bread causes Clubfoot Carl to blow up, and despite Mormont and Craster's protests, other men start listing off other foods they think Craster is holding out on. Quickly, the names of foods turn into insults against Craster. First cheap, then bastard. Craster getting mad at the term bastard makes me think of John from early A Game of Thrones, or even Ramsay, or hey, Sam earlier this chapter. Sam didn't want to be called Slayer, and Craster didn't want to be called Bastard. The similarities end there, of course, because Craster lashes out violently as the world goes mad. Once you cross the threshold of breaking guest right, all bets are off. Dirk says there are no laws beyond the wall, but that is the most narrow and literal definition of law imaginable. Guest right isn't necessarily Westeros Statute Section 137, Line A. We can cross-check that with the Learned Hands podcast. It's a fundamental binding aspect of the society to be decent and respect each other's humanity under your roof or under someone else's roof. Once those sorts of laws start breaking, yeah, you're in a mad, 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 mad world. The order of things break, and we're back to our basest selves, scraping for the most basic of needs. Dirk threatens Craster's daughters with violence for food. Other men commit rape against his daughters. All semblance of order has broken, and not because of mystical ice demons. Most of these men held their discipline in those moments. It was the hunger here that breaks them. Oh, I love what you said there about how most of the men stayed disciplined during the White Walker attack. That's really important. That was the kind of threat that held them together, because their only hope of survival was their Lord Commander. But now, the LC is telling these starving men to shut up and be grateful for what they have, which is historically not a message that goes over well. If there is such a thing as a core to politics, a central issue, I think it's hunger, the single most powerful motivation in human life. No matter how we try to imitate the gods, we are animals, hardwired to survive. Starvation is an enemy older and more powerful than the others. Nothing means anything if you can't put food on the table. Your thought process, your cognitive engine will break down along with your body. Everyone has to eat. 
there is no substitute for it. What do power and privilege mean more than anything? Not having to worry about where your next meal is coming from. Hunger is a weapon that parents wield over children, that rich nations wield over poor nations. Hunger can bring people together, spark revolutions, topple tyrants, but it can also tear apart people who were once together. That's what we're seeing here, and George does an expert job turning up the temperature. The tension raises sickeningly, even when all the Watchmen are really doing is naming foods they would love to eat. It shows you just how much everything else has fallen away, how fragile the piece is here, that simply mentioning food is a threat. It's a political act. There's something oddly childish about it, like the wistful way the Watchmen are talking about their favorite snacks, all the little details. As I was saying, it reminds me of Oliver Twist, the food, glorious food song in the musical of Oliver Twist. It's fantasy fueled by starvation. As Napoleon said, an army marches on its stomach. The Watchmen have reached the breaking point where they don't even care about getting back to the wall anymore. As Maribald would put it, they're broken men now. It's interesting how George plays this in context. On one hand, this is the payoff for Chet's mutiny that never happened. And what a great story structure that is. To set us up for the mutiny in the prologue, then hit us with the White Walker attack so we forget all about the mutiny, only to drag it back into the light here. On the other hand, the mutineers here don't line up one-to-one with Chet's crew. Sweet Donald Hill joined Chet on the fist, but he joins the loyalists here. Chet didn't mention Garth of Greenaway among his chosen ones, but he is part of the mutiny as it plays out at Craster's Keep. And while Clubfoot Carl was part of Chet's plan and antagonizes Craster here, I love how George writes the stare-down he has with Elsie Mormont. The old bear tells him, one last time, to sit down and shut up. That is my command. And one last time, we see that work. That despite Carl's pre-existing desire to rebel against Mormont, now compounded by cold, hunger, and also a zombie army, Carl is the one who seems to break to Sam. Staring down Mormont in that moment, the shadow on a wall holds. Carl believes that Mormont still has power. And so he does. It's Craster who prevents the de-escalation. Not even out of fear, but pride. They dare insult him? Craster, the life of the party? Like Mormont, Craster doesn't seem to realize what's happening here until it's too late. He is used to terrifying his unarmed daughters. The same tricks are not going to work on armed men, especially when they're starving. And they know how to get under his skin. Call him a bastard. Craster the bastard. It almost rhymes. The fucking irony of this... We've got ice demons, zombie armies, starvation, and an incestuous rape factory. Oh, but bastardy is still the ultimate insult. As though Craster's forced marriages to his daughters are an institution worth respecting. As though Craster treats his true-born sons with respect. These are the animating delusions of life north and south of the Wall. This is the story we tell ourselves to avoid facing ourselves as we are. This is what pushes Craster to openly turn against the Watchmen. But it's funny, in a very bleak way, how quickly it's all over, a Dolorous Head kind of joke. As George writes, one second Craster is just about to kill Carl, and the next second Craster is dead. Dirk opening his throat and sending their host crashing down on his own table like it's a sacrificial altar. After all that talk about cannibalism and hidden food, Craster 
has become the meat back on the menu. Hey, if this is anyone besides poor Quentin, you're stealing my bit. We'll take it to court with learned hands. <laughs> and when Mormont declares this murder most foul in violation of all the laws of the hearth, Dirk shoots back that there are no laws beyond the wall. It's the ultimate punchline of the chapter. Sam had this same thought. There are no laws beyond the wall to justify the watch letting Craster terrorize his daughters. Well, that cuts both ways. If the taboos against incest and kinslaying don't apply up here, why should guest write? The worst of the Watchmen are now embracing the idea that there are no laws beyond the wall. Might makes right. Of course, there are no hard and fast rules here as to when a law breaks down. What it comes down to, as always, is what people believe. These men no longer believe that Mormont's word is law. They no longer believe that his authority exists, and so it doesn't. He refuses to believe that, and there's an ambiguity to how George writes it. On one hand, the old bear heroically tries to intervene to protect the women of the keep from the mutineers. On the other hand, he's still doing it in the name of a world in which he has the power to behead these men. How do you think that's going to work out? Instead, Alo Lophan stabs Mormont to death. And the world went mad, George writes, a beautifully succinct summary of everything that's happening. The inversion of any sense of a stable order you can rely upon. George captures the breakdown by reflecting it in Sam's POV. He disassociates entirely and comes to an indeterminate amount of time later. The old bear's death reminds me a lot of Boromir from Fellowship of the Ring, or the start of the Two Towers, more in Tolkien's text than in Jackson's films. Boromir's death happens in the margins, between chapters and between books, and only Aragon is there to hear his last words, surrounded by scores of dead Urukai. Once Mormont is stabbed, it's over, the immediacy almost irrelevant. That's why George is able to cut to later, much later, with Sam cradling the Elsie's head. In part, this is a convenient way to get around a problem the author has created for himself. He can't have Sam escape with the other loyalists because he needs Sam to take Gilly with him, hook up with Cold Hands, and help Bran get through the wall at the night fort. But it doesn't make sense that the other loyalists would just leave Sam behind, especially Gren, who risked his life to help Sam out in the cold. So George puts Sam into a catatonic state to explain how that could happen. But it's also psychologically realistic. The same thing happened at the Red Wedding, which is so intensely vivid and memorable, not only because of what's happening, but also because of how Catalin's POV specifically conveys her breakdown as she witnesses it. By the end, she is so far gone that she can't even recognize Roos Bolton by name. He's just a guy in pink armor. And her last thought is Ned loves my hair, in the present tense, as if Ned is still alive to love anything. As many people have pointed out, Craster's Keep is essentially a dry run for the Red Wedding, the tense, miserable dinner that boils over into violence in violation of guest right. It's the subject of this book, right there in the title, A Storm of Swords, a sudden inversion of a situation. The Red Wedding is the ultimate example of the pattern. That heart of darkness bleeds into the rest of the book. As we've been saying, all of Act 2 of A Storm of Swords is full of warnings as to where this is headed. Yeah, we've been beating the drum that pretty much every chapter in Act 2 gives us a little ingredient for The Red Wedding. Guest right is the main one offered here, but as you said, this whole damn chapter is just a dress rehearsal for it. Of course, The Red Wedding is the end of Catalan's POV. Not the end of her story as a whole, obviously she comes back, but not as a POV. Sam is just getting started. In this moment, though, he'd rather not. 
He'd rather be done. George writes that Sam's voice is flat and lifeless. And while Sam is no longer afraid, it's not because he's conquered his fears, it's because he's giving up. Like Sam himself thought earlier, the whites are without fear because they're dead. He's just sitting around and waiting for the mutineers to kill him too. There's nothing left inside him, not even fear. As for Mormont himself, like any good mentor, he's got a dying wish to impart. One last task you have to get done in his place. Well, two tasks in this case. So many errands to run for the dead guy. First, Mormont tells Sam to tell everyone at Castle Black about the Dragonglass. That's the big collective responsibility. The Lord Commander doing his duty one last time. It's darkly humorous that Mormont has to basically order Sam to live, to flee, because he has to be the raven with the message, ravens being another thing they've lost on this expedition. Tell them all, to anyone who would listen, but someone has to pass this meme on, or else everything is really fucked. And going back to the things they carried, Mormont's last words for Sam to tell Jorah to take the black. Not just that, but also to forgive Jorah on his behalf. In his last moments, the old bear thinks to his son and regrets around that relationship. It's sweet, despite how we feel about Jorah. Yeah, not just to take the black, but also, as you say, to that I forgive him. That's what Mormont needs to get out, feels he has to get that out in his last moments. And that really cuts deep. Because all the way through the story so far, J.R. Mormont has insisted he feels nothing, nothing at all for the family he left behind. Yet there were always signs he was just covering up the pain, literally in the case of keeping his family's sword hidden away. He couldn't admit to that pain, for the same reason that so many of the Watchmen make fun of Sam. Because he had to play the part of the stern commander, a manly man who honors his vows. Here at the end, none of that matters. It's all falling apart anyway, that's why he's dying. In this moment, he is no longer the old bear, no longer the Lord Commander. Just as Sam wanted only to be Sam, Jor is only Jor, a father who desperately misses his son, and still loves him despite his crimes. He was more afraid of admitting that than anything else. How much sorrow, how much heartbreak, is caused by our inability to hurt honestly? This is the flip side of pretending to be brave. Sometimes that's necessary. But you always become what you pretend to be. And by the time you lose touch with your feelings, you won't even be able to recognize it. Like so many of us in our final moments, only now does Mormont realize what matters to him. Because so much else has ceased to matter. He did his best to be a father to his men, and he dies a father. Full stop. So dies Elsie Mormont. This is probably the most significant death we've had since Renly, because if the old bear lives, so much changes about the story at the Wall and in the North going forward. John is brought back into the fold with fewer problems, because Alistair Thorne and Jano Slint wouldn't even have the pretense of authority at Castle Black. But John also doesn't get the leadership experience of taking command of the defenses at the Wall. Mormont handles any potential negotiation with Mance, Mormont cuts any potential deal with Stannis, Mormont handles the issues of Gilly's baby, Val's hands, the management of the other castles along the wall, and so on. But with Mormont dead, the door is open for Jon to be elected Lord Commander at the end of the book to deal with all that shit instead. In terms of Sam's arc, Mormont's death means that Sam is out of excuses. He can't sit around waiting to die on the basis that he has to look after the Lord Commander. He can't just say, no, I wanted John to help. John's the big hero with the sword. Let him do it. Sam has to act. 
It's only now, with the political context thrown into chaos, that the magical context returns to the fore, thanks to the arrival of Gilly and two older women. We hear one of their names, Fernie, but not the other, and in this moment they feel less like the vulnerable humans they are, and more like divine figures, like I was saying about Craster. They could be the spirit of the crone, goddesses, or witches speaking with clear, cold insight. The way they talk back and forth as if completing each other's thoughts, the way they say someplace warm in unison when Sam asks where he should take Gilly, like it's a shared prayer, and of course, their dire warning at the end of the chapter about their sons coming home to claim the living. It's the most terrifying version of the prodigal son myth imaginable. After all the talk of bastardy, it's haunting that this chapter ends on a vision of Craster's rejected, true-born boys coming home to dance on their father's grave. That's what Sam has to save Gilly and her son from. The bloody cycle of sacrifice and revenge. Everything that led to this house burning down. And that won't stop when they get to the wall, where they find Stannis and Melisandre waiting for them. It won't stop when Jon becomes Lord Commander, either. Even without returning to the Craster's Keep plot like Game of Thrones did, the issues raised in this chapter linger. It's a microcosm of everything wrong with Westeros, and there is still so much fire and blood to come. Speaking of that HBO show, I do like how the mutiny itself was depicted, though they had messed a little with Mormont's motivations in the show. He was more aware of Craster's connections to the White Watch than he is in the text, and it misses out on some of the tragedy of his character in his final moments. That said, the scene itself in which the Night's Watch kill both Craster and Mormont is one of the show's most tense, bringing in Byrne Gorman to play Carl and using Rast as the pre-established little shit of the Night's Watch. John Bradley makes a great point of view for the scene as Sam, from the tasty-smelling Bannon to his immediate reaction to Go Get Gilly, a more heroic Sam, but one that plays a little bit better on television where he isn't going to go catatonic. James Cosmos gets a great final, final moment, getting stabbed by Rast, but turning around incredulous and nearly choking out Rast before coughing up his own blood. What really makes the scene for me, though, is Ramin Jawadi, or the sound designer, whoever decided to include the Night's Watch horn blast into the music once the mutiny got underway. Gorman was a great get for Carl, who was able to be incredibly menacing in his one scene in Season 3. They brought him back for Season 4 with an invented set piece at Craster's, which I don't love, but in those episodes, we further confirmed the Craster's son theory, or possibly confirmed Craster's son theory, seeing a baby marched into the lands of Always Winter and converted by the Night King himself, making his debut, again, a show-invented character most like. I'm really just curious to see how closely this hues to anything we may learn from George if we learn anything of their ongoing creation process at all. Are there even other Craster types out there feeding him more boys? Yeah, that was a really fascinating addition to the lore we got from the show. I'd be absolutely interested to learn more. And speaking of the lore, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork for this chapter, Sam thinks at one point that they don't know if Dragonglass works on the Whites as well as it does on the Others themselves. And unfortunately for him, he'll find out in his next chapter, when the dagger shatters on the armor worn by the zombified Small Paul. Yeah, sorry not to make this the official HBO podcast, but it's definitely not something I enjoyed the show playing fast and loose with near the end at season seven and season eight. Um, but to be fair, I had that criticism about all the endgame White Walker stuff and the Army of the Dead stuff. So Agreed. Agreed. 
So shifting into theory and discussion, I wanted to pose a, a question that uh, might seem obvious at first, but I think is an interesting one when you kind of delve into the ethical issues raised here. And that question is, was killing Craster actually a violation of guest right? Like Elsie Mormont says, as soon as Craster's daddy says the gods will curse us, we have violated the laws of the hearth. Is he right? And I'm going to say no. The minute Craster bears steel against the watchman pulling out his axe, he's the one in violation of guest right. Really, you could say he is just for ordering them outside, but when the axe comes out, I don't think Guestright demands that the other watchmen just sit there and let him kill Carl. In my opinion, the actual violation of Guestright comes when the watchmen turn against the women of the keep, who are also technically their hosts and have not done them any wrong at all. But maybe I'm being too pedantic and technical about it, and certainly killing Craster still leaves these women in a pretty precarious situation that, you know, that doesn't honor guest right to them necessarily either, so uh, what do you think? Yeah, I'm on your side here. Once Craster draws his weapon, it's fair game, though in a perfect scenario, and boy are we nowhere near that, you'd think so many martial men could possibly detain Craster without spilling blood. But Craster is a legit sociopath who only gets insulted by the word bastard, literally the least insulting thing you can say about him. That said, if the idea is those who violate guest right are cursed and will be punished by the gods, these mutineers probably got their come up- comeuppance. I can get Mormont exclaiming it in the moment, though. He doesn't have the hindsight of reread like us to turn it over in his head whether these men really broke guest right. But seeing a man murdered in his own home probably has him speaking out of reflex and a desire to maintain some order before even more shit breaks loose. But also, I'm totally amenable on the guest right being broken when they go after Craster's wives and what it means for Craster's wives being left like this. They deserve some justice, somehow, and I'm willing to give them any that I can offer. And we get a different version of that than the show, but yes, that is something we will be picking up on briefly when we get to Bran's first chapter in A Dance with Dragons. So that is going to wrap us up for this episode on A Storm of Swords, Samwell 2. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Manuclear Bomb. You can also find my coverage of Andor over at my brother, my captain, my podcast, my Lord of the Rings podcast. And my most recent Star Wars episode is up for all our $5 and above patrons over at patreon.com slash notacast ASOIAF. And my next Lord of the Rings episode will be up for all our $5 and above patrons next week. But next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, Arya arrives at the fireworks factory. That's right. It's time for Beric Dondarrion. Oh, and Sandor is there too, I guess. I guess he counts. We'll we'll mention him. And I am excited to announce we're going to be having on a special guest for that episode, a guest I've been looking to for a while, our friend Ruben, also known as at Lies and Perfidy on Twitter. Uh, Ruben's just a really terrific guy, really smart, really funny, knows a ton about fantasy, and I was so happy he wanted to come on for this chapter, so we're going to have a great time. Yeah, me and Ruben go back over a decade. We started talking about baseball, but when we both found out we were both a Song of Ice and Fire sickos, um, we naturally were able to grow even closer over that. I think it's been an exciting time for Ruben because his screen name, like you mentioned, is Lies and Perfidy, and we did get an actual instance of Perfidy in the House of the Dragons first season with Damon pretending to surrender in the third episode against the Crab Feeder. So it's a good time to be Ruben, and I'm happy to bring him on board. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. 
So uh, thank you again for listening, everyone, and we will see you next time in A Song of Ice and Fire for A Storm of Swords, Arya 6.